Hello and welcome to Sundown on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Carlos Frias is out today. The artist Dee Smith left Miami for New York in the early 2000s. She's back in town as a director of her first film. Dee grew up in a musical household in Opelika. Her dad was a drummer. She worked as a music producer in Atlanta, making records with artists like Lil Wayne, Sierra, and Andre 3000. She was even nominated for two Grammys. But Dee left the industry after she transitioned. Actually, she says she was pushed out. When she introduced herself as a trans woman, her colleagues stopped calling her. That rejection eventually led her to make her first film, Kokomo City. It follows four black trans women living in New York and Atlanta. Dee wanted to focus on black trans sex workers. A lot of us are a secret to many powerful people. She's not aware of the fact that her black successful husband is upstairs in their beautiful condo down in Tribeca, laid up with a black trans woman. In no way are they there to protect us. They just can't accept being with a trans woman in public because it's their ego and they gonna feel the world is gonna belittle them for what they like. Violence doesn't happen before the orgasm, it happens after. The trans women we usually see on screen are in full glam, but Dee wanted to show them dressed down in their homes. The effect is raw and intimate. Kokomo City premiered earlier this year and has already won awards at the Sundance Film Festival. It's opening in Miami tomorrow at O Cinema on South Beach. To talk to us about making her film debut in her hometown is Dee Smith. Dee Smith, how are you feeling today? Amazing, thank you so much for having me. I like you already because you have the water right there. And I tend to ask people, are you hydrated? Oh, yeah. Clearly no. you are hydrated. Listen, that's the thing. You're starting to see people walking around with uh, electrolyte drinks and everything. you got to pay attention to the signs. You Stay hydrated. Right? <laughs> yes. All of these heat advisories? Uh, yeah. No. No, thank you. I have water right here. Thank you. <laughs> have you been, like, traveling a lot? Like, have you actually experienced how hot Florida has been? Yes. Yeah. But thank God. Honestly, thank God for the beautiful palm trees that we have and the water because I was in New York two or three days ago and literally it's an, it's an <laughs> oven. I mean, like old school oven, like what they used to do 2,000 years ago, like the brick ovens. That's right. what New York is, is a brick oven. Well, now we work with air fryers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so you're here about your film, um, Kokomo City, yes. which has won multiple awards. Yeah. Uh, it premiered at Sundance. Yes. So you are not playing around. No, um, no, no, no. And it's opening in Miami. Yes. Tomorrow. Yes. Um, the viewers get to see the results of hard work. I saw the result of hard work, uh, but not the difficult creative process mm. that directors go through. Mm. Um, how long did it take you to finish this project? Um, well, we technically just finished maybe three or four days ago. <laughs> um, no, like, but actually quite seriously, uh, I think between the technical work at the end and also like starting the first frame, it, it's, it's been a good solid three years. Um, I think, I don't think it's ever gonna take me that long to do a documentary again. I, I wasn't planning on that. I, again, I have to jump on the COVID bandwagon. It definitely played a part in pushing everything back, you know, for a whole year like so I think maybe a good nine months to a year if, if there was no interruptions uh, I could have finished it but also I had the obstacle of having a safe 
stable place to live too because all that the whole time I was doing this film I was sleeping on people's couches and floors and cars so I had a lot of uh, adversity that I had to face to get this done yeah and we're gonna get to that yeah um wait so you, you said the film technically finished a few days ago so what yeah. so it, uh, are you talking about like color grading no 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 I mean like actual um um handing it over to Magnolia ah. like like normally they're they're like Within two months, yes, Magnolia, uh, the distributor. Um, two months before film is even released, they have everything done. But no one, I don't think anyone really saw Kokomo City uh, <laughs> gaining what is gained. This momentum, and so, yeah. so my producer, Harris Duran, shout out to Harris. Um, he really did, you know, all of the work as far as the technical stuff and crossing the T's and dotting the I's mm. and and uh, I wanted no parts of it. So he doesn't have a full-fledged running company. It's just him. Right. So he's doing all these things that even he didn't know and uh, it was a learning process for both of us, quite frankly. I think a lot of people are learning about how the industry works, oh, yeah. both the music and film industry. Oh, yeah. We're seeing like the writer strike, the SAG strike. Yeah. Um, folks are coming out who are on like popular Netflix shows saying, hey, look at my residual checks. Wow. They're quite smaller wow. than what they used to right. be. Right. right. Um, and and so when I hear that you were a two time Grammy nominated producer mm -hmm. for the average person, yeah. that sounds yeah. like you have wealth that extends oh. beyond yeah. your years. Right? Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah. So I bought tell my mom a house, bought my mom a car. That's what it's sounds like yeah exactly that's what it sounds like <laughs> yeah. uh so tell me how uh, you know you stepped on friends couches uh, yeah. explain what going from that mm. to to being homeless mm. um well yeah i i i 2014 i mean i was probably i've probably been producing for about 15 years now in the industry and um in 2014 i decided that i wanted to physically transition and when I did that so many of my colleagues and you know connections and uh A&Rs and labels that I had built these relationships with over the years due to my music um they all just kind of like were cut off and I was in such a deep denial I was thinking these are my friends these are people that I respect they respect me I've always kind of um just delivered what I needed to. I've never been in any trouble, never been to jail, never, you know, it's just all these things I've played by the book. And I think surely me being transgender um, is not going to affect my business. I just knew it. And I defended them and I, I was in denial for so long. Um, but I don't know, kind of like the first sign was when I lost my studio and I couldn't keep up you know, reaching out to people for advances and uh, your residential studio. Yeah, uh, well, my my personal recording studio. Okay. in Atlanta. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, I, uh, of course, got evicted out of my apartment. And and you have to understand, from a child, this is something that I've always wanted to do is music. So you know, my whole entire life, I've only had one nine to five job in my whole life. And it was, uh, thank God, it was kind of fun because it was, it was at a boutique hotel. I could dress really fun. You meet people, you get great tips. But it took all of my time from what I wanted to do, right? Mm. So skills or schooling to, as, for, as far as like anything else outside of the arts, I just didn't know. And um, so I relied on music. That's That was all I knew. And uh, having opportunities taken away from you, you know, um, 
when you're depending on, you know, your talent, it, it was devastating. And I couldn't get back on my feet. I couldn't, I couldn't fight it. And I lost everything, my car and my apartment. But this is not just a sob story. This is like just, of course, this like, is a testimony of how important it is to really know who you are and, and understand that you have to tap into your true, absolute divine purpose of why you're here. And it's really hard to do that when there's no money to support you to just sit back and think about your purpose sure, in life. You know, right. you you really have to train yourself to just have boundaries and, and protect your integrity so that nothing really distracts you or take you out of your 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 path. So, so in that moment of despair, yeah, you found some of your creative impulses mm. to, you know what? Yeah. I've lost so much. Yeah. I'm considered rock bottom yeah. by my own estimate. Oh, yeah. I might as well go all in on this documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have like a particular space and time? Was it in the shower where the idea started hitting you? Yeah, sure, was sure. it like, did you sure. watch a film? Like yeah. what, what, what really sparked that interest for you? I, it was right before COVID hit was a real thing. I was just started uh, taking pictures around the city. I, I love spending time alone sometimes. I really love that. And I spent a lot of time alone walking around the city shooting pictures with my iPhone and I would, you know, convert them into black and white. And I just loved how it, it was so therapeutic. It's so weird to even think about now how calming it was. And people- What, what city? In New York. New York. Yeah, sorry, mm -hmm. in Manhattan. And I would post them to my Instagram story and people would, like the engagement just started to go up and up and up and up. And, you know, and and uh, and I started to really see people really engaging and encouraging me to do more of those pictures. And I thought someone suggested you should put something up on YouTube. And I said, wow, like people really digging these pictures. I mean, I loved it. But for people to take time to respond, I, I knew something was happening there. And so I was like, I would actually love to see this style in motion and what, what 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 does that mean does it mean just me doing a short film with my phone again and just putting on or or do i want to do something really significant and and i really was drawn to like you said to just go all the way and i saw this documentary so clear so clear so clear that it it pretty much i would say 90 percent came out how I envisioned it or would have wanted it. Wow. Absolutely. From, was, from, from the from, cinematography, yes, the composition. Yeah, the girls, the style, um, the response, everything mm. has been like literally I'm seeing what I saw in my head, like what, what I thought this film could do. I think if you like you see a void that needed to be filled yes. and you felt like, okay, you know what? I, if there's anybody going to do it, it's going to be D. Yeah. Smith, right? And so many people say, well, God, you you did the cinematography, you edited, you know all these things. I mean, yes, it was primarily because I couldn't <laughs> it. Okay, yeah. uh, girl was broke down, but I was broke, but I wasn't broken. You know, was um, that a seamless transition from? All right, so you were a music producer, so you mm -hmm. already knew how to edit audio, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, do you think technically it was a seamless? transition to doing film i think so i i honestly think it, it applies the same way you when you're editing music you're just taking out what you don't want you're taking out what isn't aesthetically pleasing so i did that with the film i i literally wanted to make a film selfishly as something that i would want to watch hmm. you know i what would i watch what not that i like my taste is the best in the world but <laughs> i will turn if, if I'm not stimulated, like I, I would, you know, and right. especially with a documentary, how do you keep people's attention with the doc? So I have to incorporate elements that I would think is cool and dope in a documentary. 
And, uh, you know, it needless to say, it kind of led me to my style of shooting. And discussing topics that's rarely discussed about in a very nuanced way, mm -hmm. filming it in a very unique way. Absolutely. Uh, you had all of those elements checked yeah. out. Um, and so I want to touch, go back on the the part about being pushed out of the music industry. Sure. Um, the music industry and the film industry are mm -hmm. industries that rely so much on physical networking. Yes. Connections. Yep. Did you have any sort of fear that, okay, mm -hmm. First of all, what does being pushed out mean? Mm. Like, did they stop accepting phone calls mm. and stop replying on emails? Yeah. And then I want to get to how you were able to sort of heal from that and to mm. get into another industry mm. that relies on the same method of communication. Mm. So mm. let's let's touch base on that. So how yeah. what is being pushed out of the music industry feel like and, and what did it look like? The music industry is so it's people are hardly ever held accountable in the music industry because we use the excuse of creative uh, uh, intent. Uh, sometimes people could be fired due to uh, uh, lack of creative chemistry or, you know, there's so many ways to ease out of being held accountable, right? And so what being kicked out of the music industry looks like is just when people stop responding, stop, uh, um, um, I don't know, returning emails or, you know, like I think around that time, I probably had two or three um, projects, meaning songs that were in the pipeline. Pipeline meaning that the label is in the process of um, uh, getting the artists to either record the song or getting payment processed mm. so nothing is guaranteed until that check hits that bank account <laughs> let me tell you i don't care if the artist is calling you saying oh my god i can't wait this to come out it's gonna change our lives and ha, 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 ha. until that check hits that thing you don't have that money mm. so um i'm not gonna i'm, I'm not going to name the, the artists in particular but two of them are rappers and and one are uh, one is one that people absolutely cherish and, and I'm Jeff just not going to touch on that, sure. but it, I'm only saying that is that it hits everybody. And, and it's, the, I don't even think it was necessarily transphobia. I just think it was the fear of being associated with something that wasn't accepted or, or polished enough to kind of like show off. And, and let's think, let's think about this. There was no black producer in the history of music that decided that they're gonna transition into female. I mean, I've worked with rappers and on and on and R&B singers and, and you're attached to them for life. Like the song I did with Lil Wayne, no matter what, he, beautiful, I love him, love him. That's my homie. But he, we're attached until we die because we, we did work together, right? So s people want to not be attached to something that either the masses don't agree with or they don't agree with so um that, that just sounds like an incredible sense of loneliness at yeah. that point right oh absolutely and i mean i had friends but they couldn't fill that void of me being a producer or that creative if anyone any creative any creators that are listening now including yourself just there's a love there for what we do that it doesn't even matter if we're getting paid or not it's it's that comes first that we're able to just do it hmm. of course we want to get paid but that natural sense of I have to create is just who we are. And when that's taken away from you, it's literally like killing someone right. it, and it slowly just 
just chipped at chipped at me for years and years and I've always kind of been like the person that people could come to and talk to and I always you know not had the answer but I was I was always a, a I was pretty stable hmm. and yeah. I was also embarrassed of how do I talk to anybody I don't know any trans people especially black how do I even explain what I'm going through to anyone and you know again I love my friends and I don't have a lot of them but I have the same friends that I've had for 20 years and I love them. I know they're my friends. Keep keeping that circle yes, small. That's, and I love that. I'm and glad we, I did that. Yeah. Um, our guest today is Dee Smith. She's a Grammy winning music producer and film director. We are talking about your life and um, all of the sort of various aspects of your life and how it you know, transitions into film, mm, right? Mm. Transitions for, you know, no yeah. pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so tell me how you got into the music industry first. Well, I've always done music my pretty much my entire life. Um, I've been influenced by my father, who was a uh, world-renowned drummer, and also my grandmother, who had me in church three days a week. Um, between those, I, I just had a really eclectic style of music and uh, influence. Um, when I left Miami as a child, I went to New York, and I was homeless. I, I mean, listen, there's a pattern here, but also it's there. there's also a reason um when when we when you have so much ambition and when you know that you're you're more than your circumstance you you just have to go for it and i went for it as a child i went to new york how, how old were you when you left when i left here mm -hmm. 16 16 and, and, yeah. and what did they listen to what music what do oh uh, your family oh my god everything from uh, blues to rock music my dad um he played in jazz bands and every single genre of gospel music there was i was obsessed and uh you know i learned to play instruments in church and all those things and i was a very uh <laughs> very ambitious child for sure i wanted to do it all and so you know there was tension kind of growing between me and my father he started questioning my sexuality and i was so afraid and furious at the same time that I left. I left also because I wanted to pursue music. And so when I got to New York, I, I went to 72nd Broadway train station. I don't know why. <laughs> and I got off and um, I slept there. I had a duffel bag. And it's just like I started to hear uh, is the next day or the day, be day the day after I heard uh, three guys singing. They were uh, subway singers. And um, I was so moved and so relieved to hear harmony. It just reminded me of growing up and <clears throat> um, it was very warm and comforting to me. And so I started to sing with them. I didn't ask, I just started to harmonize and they and I got their attention and next thing you know, I, I bought a keyboard uh, and I'm sitting in the subway with them singing and I started to uh, save money to get a uh, a room this in is Harlem. such a new york story it is it's so crazy i'm like god this is this is this is crazy and i i saved enough money to get a room in harlem and and i started to get become stable and and i uh started to do shows around the city with with them they became my band and i kind of split them up and added more guys and, and you know and it just it was just there i started doing gigs like four or five times a week wow and then i kept singing in the subway and then i got um, approached by uh, Lion King, a producer, uh, Lion King, um, Pam Young at the time. I don't think she's there anymore, but they offered me the lead role 
Um, I was terrified. I went through Disney master classes for like three or four months and they told me we're going to make you Zimba. And I'm like, no hell you're not. You, you got the lead role in, in what? No? Lion King. In Lion King. Yeah. Yeah. And, and but, which, which particular character? In Lion? Zimba, the lead. The man. And I'm, I'm thinking when they offered me the Disney master classes that um, I was going to maybe be a tree branch or a zebra or a gazelle or something. And when I got there, they were training me to be the lead. And this is on, on Broadway or off Broadway? No, was, well, I, well, they wanted me to, when they offered me the job, they wanted me to go to Chicago. And that was, I, I was already kind of on the fence about even doing the main, like Broadway, because I, I was missing music. And it's so crazy. I was missing singing in the subway for a living. It was as hard as it is. I, I was missing that grittiness and that realness. I, I wanted it. And it was the quintessential uh, audition. They were like, 20 people at this huge table, hardwood floors, a mirror, a piano in the corner. And they were like, listen, they asked the accompanist to get off of the piano and for me to do what they saw in the subway. And I did this Stevie Wonder song. I was so scared. I, I think I killed it. I, I don't remember, but they were in awe. You know, this is, I'm going to tell you why this is also fascinating. Wow. So you were 16 at the time? No, I was probably like 18 at 18. the time. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. typically when I think of auditions, I think of like, a parent mm. accompanying mm. their child mm -mm. to an audition. Mm -hmm. How did your parents react when you decided to leave to New York in the first place? Um, I honestly lied and told my father that I was going to move to Atlanta um, with one of my cousins. And I just, I had no intentions. And I caught a Greyhound all the way from Miami to New York. Oh, you deuced out. No, it was crazy. And I was gone, like gone, goodbye. And I, I listen, I grew up in church here in Miami. I was I was surrounded by the same friends. I wasn't growing mentally, spiritually, nothing. It was just the same jokes, the same crowd, the same clothes, the same every I just got I felt so claustrophobic, you know, spiritually. I really I just really wanted freedom. And I I was drawn to being afraid of going to a big city. I was drawn to being, I'm going to figure it out. You know, I wasn't raised that way. I was raised very sheltered and safe and uh, cared for in, in terms of like, uh, you know, as a child, I did child things and nothing bad, traumatic happened to me, like sexually or not. You know, I was very, I was very guarded you know, um, with my protected with mm -hmm. my family between church and, uh, and everything else. But, um, for me to kind of go out on my own in this way, you know, it was, it felt so natural. Very bold. Yeah. Very, very bold. bold. But I've always been like that. My work ethic has always been sky high. I, I ha hardly ever complain when it comes to work. Like I'll do whatever it takes. Um, and, and, and let's talk about yeah. work ethics. Yeah. Um, some of the characters in the, in your film, Kokomo, mm -hmm. uh, you know, New York and Atlanta. Kokomo City. Uh, Kokomo City. Yeah, yeah. My apologies. No, that's okay. okay. Um, there's an aha moment that I felt mm -hmm. when I watched the film mm -hmm. where I realized where the title came from. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, can you explain? Because I don't want, obviously, I don't want to give it out. But can you explain why you decided to name the film Kokomo City? Yeah, I mean, it was very important that I didn't take a lot of the uh, talking points, some of the techniques that so many times we're we're given as trans people like in film or documentaries you know i definitely didn't want this to look or feel like your regular documentary or more or less lgbt documentary so uh, with the title i definitely wanted it not to be a play like transaction or a tra you know and so as i'm looking for 
uh, copyright free music from the 30s and 40s, um, I come across this song called Sissy Man Blues. And uh, in one of the lyrics, it says, Lord, if you won't bring me a woman, please bring me some sissy man. And this was sang by a black man in the 1930s when black people were being lynched and drugged and missing and killed. Um, here's this black man singing about what he wanted sexually. And I was like, this is a gift. I've never heard of this song. His name was Kokomo Arnold. And so I was like, how amazing of a gift is this? You know, I thought Kokomo, I love that name. And then I'm just going to slap on city. It just feels like a place or. Um, when I heard him know. sing that line, I was like, ah, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's that beautiful, like, um, Easter egg yeah, that you're yeah, sort of searching yeah, for yeah, in the film. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so that was that was quite uh, quite interesting. Thank you. Now, your film, I like to describe it as an existential documentary. Mm. And, um, you know, and it follows four black trans women mm-hmm. sex workers mm-hmm. in Atlanta and New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniela Carter. Yeah. Coco uh, Dadal. Yeah. Leah Mitchell. Yeah. And Dominique Silver. Yeah. And rest in peace to Coco Dadal. Absolutely. Uh, she was one of the stars in your film. Yeah. She was killed. Um after the film, right? Mm-hmm. After shooting, yeah. Uh, can you? Uh, well, obviously after shooting, um, but it could have been during no. production as well. No, no, I was done. It was, was definitely yeah. afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about her story and what she meant to this project? Um, she, I mean, my my best friend uh, had reached out to me about meeting her. I was on my way to Atlanta from New York um to move back to Miami and here I am in the car going to Atlanta to meet uh Leah Mitchell and um he called me about Coco the doll and I was like okay I'm open yeah sure and maybe talking to her for 30 to 45 seconds she started crying and I was so drawn to how transparent and and open she was and I felt her pain over the phone I literally felt it I could have pulled over and just really processed how important this was for her. She really just, one of the first things she said was, I I just want to tell my story. And she literally started crying. And I said, could you imagine how long it took for her to tell someone that has the opportunity to, to allow her to tell her story? Can you imagine how bottled up that felt and how painful it was uh, for her to have gone to going through what she's gone through? And um, I, I immediately met her, I think, uh, later that night or the next day it was. And um, it was just so amazing. I, I, It was obviously hard to process and obviously very uh, sad by it. We all are. But in processing her being taken away, I understand what her purpose was. Her purpose was to be in this film. I am speaking with Dee Smith, the Grammy-nominated music producer and film director with her debut film, Kokomo City. Uh, D. Smith, let's talk about some of the folks in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, these are trans women with various strong opinions about how society views them and their complicated family dynamics, yeah. uh, their preferences and values, how the pros and cons of sex work determines whether they want to do it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, we just got through talking about um, uh, Coco Dadal, mm-hmm. rest in peace to her, yes. about the import- the importance of storytelling and mm-hmm. how much it meant for her she mm-hmm. had, she actually expressed that in the film yeah. as well like you met her in person yeah. and she expressed the same exact sentiment yeah. within the film yeah. um how did you gain trust from each person well i had to approach them with humility and i had to be as respectful 
and uh, transparent as possible. I was like, listen, I don't have a budget. I've never done a film in my life, um, but I need you to uh, be as transparent and uh, tell me, uh, I need you to look at the camera and be as transparent and open as you want to be and as you could possibly be. And um, no one knew anything about my personal situation that was not necessary, but I did let them know I, I can't afford a lighting person. And uh, even if I could, I still would want you not glammed up. I, I had to ex explain to them very candidly about what the process of filming was going to be like. I, you know, I, I'm going to ask, I'm going to request things or ask things as a director. And, and if you're comfortable, we're going to go with it. If not, it's no sweat. Um, but I, I, I do want this to be creative. And I told them and they were super excited. I think, I think they were just really motivated by the possibility of just being liberated. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Hmm. And in and, and, and filmmaking, there's a term called cinema verite and which means like it tries to show the true nature of yeah. the atmosphere, yeah. the mise-en-scene that yeah. you're trying to, to yeah. capture, yeah. you know, and you did a great job of, of doing that. Um, and obviously you did a great job at allowing these folks to be vulnerable. Mm. And uh, the documentary also includes the different kinds of men who are attracted to trans women. Yeah. Um, how would you describe the film and the purpose behind adding that element to it? Um, well, it was very important to have the guys in the film, um, <clears throat> primarily because so often there, there aren't any safe places or dignified, respectful uh, places for men to actually say how they feel, even if it's them saying they're not attracted to trans women, but they they are cool with trans women. You know, um, where is a place for a man to say that without being bashed? It's definitely not social media and definitely not in hip hop. It's definitely not in hip hop or in church or it's like on the basketball court. So um, these guys, most of them are my personal friends. Um, I have a fairly high amount of male friends due to me being a producer and you know just people just they just you know they like to hang with me and these guys um you know so so many times black men are just looked at uh with trans women connected with trans women like either they're running out of a hotel room or they're defending themselves on social media or they're denying what they knew and what they did not know about a trans woman and but it's always a defensive, fearful, shaming kind of way. And I wanted these guys to have a, a clear space for them to say whatever they wanted to say. And and this is the reality of transgender women. We have guy friends. We have friends that also are attracted to us, and that is okay. And um, and I think these guys were a great representation of where we are in 2023, for sure. And. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm. In 2023, mm. uh, some of the topics that the men in the film talked about yeah. resonate with some of the conversations online. And yeah. we'll get to some of that yeah. a little bit later. Um, I've noticed some of the folks in the film were from South Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, how was it like filming in your hometown <laughs> and which particular area? So <laughs> so the folks who live in those areas can be like, yeah, my town. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Oh my God. I mean, I did a lot of B-roll in Fort Lauderdale, like Sunrise area. Um I forgot the name of some of the streets, but a lot of the B-roll there. And I I shot um, Exo Tommy in Paris in Hollywood, Florida, um, not far from that uh, um, casino there off in Hollywood. What's that street? Uh, 441, I believe. Um, but no, it felt, it felt really 
uh, not trippy, but just really euphoric in, in the sense of like the last time I was in Florida, like as a creator, I was trying to get out because I wanted to express. Now I'm back to finish something like one, if not the biggest project I've ever done as a creator. Uh, it felt like just super fulfilling. And, and I mean, you had to do your own location scouting. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. You're oh, yeah. Editing. Listen. Shooting. Yeah. Uh, lighting. Yeah. Audio. Yeah. Location scouting. Yeah. I mean, sometimes my sister will let me lend her she would lend me her car for an hour so i had an hour to make it happen listen okay so i have to say i need to go down this street whether i deem it safe or <laughs> pretty or not i need this b-roll i need to do what i have to do so i'm driving my sister's car with one hand and looking at the road but also <laughs> holding in my right hand the camera and hoping things are in focus fair, fairly in focus or you know it, and also having to look out, you know, because a lot of people thought I was like, you know, 5-0, like the police. <laughs> like, I mean, how crazy is that? A black woman just riding slow. Hey, oh you could have been an informant in oh their God, eyes. Oh, God, no. I'm lucky to have got out of this with my life, for sure. And and you mentioned your sister. Is your sister also a creative? Or? She's, she's also transgender as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, listen, if my dad's listening, hey, listen. <laughs> you know, but she... Uh, you know, no, I was, uh, my, my dad kind of gave me a hard time about, you know, my identity. And, and he also shared stories when he was a kid, how he bullied a lot of queer people and just silly, silly stuff. And now older sister, younger sister. She's younger. She's younger. She's also she did the B-roll in the film. Wow. She's in the B. I, I lived with her. She let me live with her for about a year, you know, rent free. And so, did she follow your your footsteps in terms of you? coming out as your true self, yeah. did she feel emboldened by those by yeah, those particular I, steps? I think so, of course. I mean, she's told me a couple times. Um, she's a Virgo. She's a hard nut to, to crack. So for her to, you know, give, you know, to say what she feels out, I, I always believe her. And this is the first time she's tough. This is a, the first time I've ever seen her cry, shared her tear, and she cried, cried, was when she saw Kokomo City. <laughs> she boohooed at the end <laughs> like it, 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 i was like the, I the got film you. wasn't just entertaining it was also informative just in terms mm. of how um when you hear the term trans woman mm. there's this idea that yeah. it's this one community with one soul mm. opinion yeah. one soul perspective yeah. one soul background and experience and each of your four characters in this film displayed um the the various mindsets that they have yeah and and convey their viewpoints very differently yeah, yeah. um your film is also executively produced by lena waith yes uh she's a powerhouse in the she film is. and tv industry she especially is. among black creatives yes. um how is it like working with someone who is so steeped in the culture but has all of this um institutional pool in yeah. the film industry yeah lena wow lena has been so how can I, how can I even put this into words As, outside of Kokomo City she has completely become my mentor she will say that this this is something we've agreed on the phone she's like I'm like listen I'm here to listen and take any advice I'm learning anything you want to tell me she said cool I'm going to mentor you and we're going to get through this I'm going to teach you the game and that's exactly what she's doing she's protecting me and giving me knowledge and um also she is one of the biggest uh fans of uh and supporters of kokomo city she was in complete awe years ago when she saw just a smidget of a half a trailer that i did 
or thought I was going to do. And she was completely compelled with that. And uh, years later, here we are. And uh, no, she's been extremely instrumental as far as me as a director moving forward. And, and did she help? I mean, she's part of the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. Um, did she help sort of craft some of, uh, I guess not the questions, but the tonality of mm. the film? Or, mm. Because it felt like you covered so much ground, mm. um, not just in terms of the current conversation, whether it be the infighting within the community or the discussion surrounding trans women mm. and how they are mm. valued in society, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There's so much ground that you covered in the film. Yeah. What was that creative process like working with someone who was also part of the community? Sure. Um, so when, when Lena came in, the film was done, but everything she thought was so compelling. And she's even told me how much she's learned from the film, even as a director, you know, um, because it was very important for me that, um, or a filmmaker rather, um, it was very important for me that I, my reach was greater than most LGBT films are, or all of them as possible. And what, what, what was important is for me to say, well, what turned people off? What scares people? Like, you know, it, it is definitely the name transgender scares people. The word LGBT scares people. It's a turnoff for a lot of people. Hell, it scares me sometimes because, you know, I don't know how to talk to most trans people or queer people a lot because of a lot of, you know, the language, the, ru politics. the rules and the, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it, it definitely is a barrier. And um, I am here for me, um, speaking for myself, that I, I, there's only so far that I can go with that because the bigger picture for me as a director, a filmmaker, is to bring my people, black people, together. And I'm not fooling with all of that, especially, you know, older black people are not, we're, they're never going to, I mean, they're trying to still cope with your what? <laughs> you do what? You do who? They can't imagine it. They're not finna do the ABCs backwards and inside out. L let's stay on that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's fascinating to hear that coming from you. Yeah. Mainly because, you know, I, I identify as a straight black man. Right. right? And, right. and we um, talked about that experience or, or the film talks about that experience yeah. between the interaction mm. of men who present as straight but mm. yet have attraction to trans women. Sure. But even more importantly, how just a broader society grapples with the naming. So, for yeah. example, even coming into this interview, yeah. I was like, can I refer oh to the women God. in the film as girls oh or should God. I say trans women? Oh and so yeah. it, it does make the conversation difficult because yeah. of the language yeah. sort of barriers that yeah. surround um, how each individual transgender person refers to be called. Yeah. Um, and so let, let's transition into sort of like the tension that I've noticed online mm -hmm. um, between black trans women and black women. Mm -hmm. um, recently, a trans woman shared her her personal views mm -hmm. about the gatekeeping of periods mm -hmm. and womanhood, mm -hmm. and her opinions were used as a reflection of the entire trans community. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on how we're discussing these topics? Thank you for asking that question that way. How we're addressing it is the problem. I definitely don't think that social media is the place for this this topic this topic is so and what i mean by this topic i don't mean what the girls were bickering about online right um i mean the greater conversation of where is the anger coming from where is the animosity coming from where's the defensiveness coming from on both sides i'm not a both side type of person i'm gonna choose one and be mad at everyone talking about i see both sides i hate that but i understand that there sometimes there is a both sides and this is the perfect example of a both sides Trans women feel mis misunderstood, heard, 
they're hurt, we're hurt, we're traumatized from childhood. Same with black women, the same thing, um, except we don't have a place that says, hey, this is where we're gonna talk and we're gonna meet in the middle. And these are the rules not to hurt or defend say what you have to say, let's talk. How do we, what does that even look like? Who's in the room? Who's listening? And what's pushing that that conversation out? Not this conversation, because there are a lot of entities and publications that's pushing that conversation, glorifying and and also, you know, uh, um, so um, I don't know, just, just scrutinizing that conversation as if that is the, I don't know. It's just, it feels like there's so many great conversations that happens between black women and trans women that are on, you know. Um, uh, um, Daniela Carter in a film um, described it as performative love sometimes because mm-hmm. um, she said, quote, you're beautiful, you're a woman. Mm-hmm. These are things that mm-hmm. she would hear. Mm-hmm. And then until their husband or son likes them. Sure. And, and so um, how does that sort of inconsistent support system make you feel mm-hmm. from some of the women who consider themselves as feminists, feminist, yeah. and they would say they support trans women, yeah. just not when they're, they're sure. male family members look, or relatives. Look, my dad, my dad, for example, he's not a woman, obviously, but this is a perfect example. Um, my dad and my dad was cool as as he got older with gay people in the church. There are gay people everywhere, right? My dad played drums in church and all whatnot. But he didn't hang out with them, but he would laugh and joke, you know, how people do with gay people. Sometimes gay people look at, I mean, sometimes the society and black women look at gay people as court gestures, you know, because they're fun, they're temporary, they're colorful, they're bright, and they're entertaining. If you cross that line where you look too much like them, and you start to grow breasts and you start to date the same men, you're wearing the same clothes, you're going to the same stores, you're going to the same restrooms, it becomes not funny anymore. And I also think that when, you know, I don't know Santana and I wish him the best. I think he's doing great for what for what he's doing, but he's easier to be accepted because he's not a threat. There's 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 this Santana. thing. Um, oh my god. We don't have to name names. No, I can't remember <laughs> his name. God, I feel so bad. Um Saucy Santana. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never met him. But but for example, women have always been drawn to flamboyant men gay men even in the church even in school even in school like I had all the girls and all the boys thought that they were my girlfriends and I was just like you know but they were just lived for me because I was flamboyant right and so so I I feel what Domin, uh, Daniela is saying um, and but how how do we help that when trans people trans women are being defensive also it's like where's the ground of communication where we're not going to attack each other. Yeah. You know? And, and I think this film tries to navigate those questions in its own way. Yeah. And I think it's going to spark that type of dialogue. Yeah, I hope so. Um, how do you feel about it premiering at O Cinema? Oh, my gosh. I'm so, like, I, I, I promise you, I was saying before we started, how I've not had a moment to really fully, completely just go, wow, what the hell just happened from January to now? But it's been a freight train of excitement and experience and and uh, joy and gratitude. And I'm super excited about 
uh, the future and more people seeing this film. The more people can see this film, the more successful we will be as a community. And it's very, very important that everyone sees this film. And, and, and so what sort of conversation do you also expect it to have within the LG, LGBT plus community? Mm. Uh, because there's also been infighting within the community yeah. as well. It's, yeah. it's you know, typically online you hear the um, cross-cultural fights, yeah. but within the, yeah. the vast yeah. and various LGBT yeah. plus community, do you think it'll spark certain conversations in there? Possibly. Honestly, possibly. I, I will say this. I think that we literally have to create some type of coalition uh, for black people. I think the the best thing to do is to get, just get leaders from all across the board. You know, two lesbian leaders, two gay leaders, two trans leaders, two male leaders, two women leaders, and put us all in a room and say, what are we going to talk about? What are we doing? How are we moving forward? And how are we going to do this? I think that's the most important thing because everyone wants to talk, but we need to focus on the most important things as a community. Did this film feel like a sense of closure, um, cathartic, um, what did the movie do for you? Oh, God. Uh, completely opened up my soul to be um, healed. It exposed me. It exposed me in the way of... I've just become so vulnerable in the process of making this film. And I, didn't, I don't even know why. I didn't know why. It just happened. Like this whole window of you, you have to heal. You have to forgive. You have to move on. You have to fix. You have to face. You have to revisit. You have to reintroduce. You have to re. <laughs> R-E. That's just came to me. And I, I've never gone on such a journey that I needed to heal. I never thought anything was so wrong with me that I needed to heal. But there were a lot of things that I had to unlearn and, and just revisit and sit with and pray about and talk about. And, and this all happened. It wasn't necessarily the protagonist in the film that triggered that. It was just what it took for me to do this, me having the opportunity and the strength and the mindset to even have the patience and to create the space to even make this film with everything I've gone through was a wake-up call, a spiritual wake-up call to say there is a great purpose for me. That's why I have this amazing film that I'm birthing. You were you were homeless uh, to start the cinematic yeah. journey, yeah. and you've managed to find home within Absolutely. yourself. Ooh. See, can, can I'm done. You hear, you, hear, a, you hear me snap? You know what? I'm done. <laughs> That was ill. I hope y'all recorded that. Did y'all get that? <laughs> yes. That was ill. What? I love it. What's What's next for you? Um, any major projects that you're working on? Whether yep. it's music, whether it's film. Yep. I mean, you're a creator. Obviously, now the creative juices are going. Oh, they're going. The um, phone you, calls are going. The emails are going. I'm happy. I have a fabulous agent, fabulous management team, great support system. Um. I am working on a new film um, with a fantastic producer team, and I am extremely excited. I, it's a great follow-up. It's not queer or LGBT at all. It's quite different, but it is culturally relevant and important, and I have a take on that and a twist to it. And I'm, I honestly cannot <laughs> wait for the world to even know what it's about. It's it's just incredible. I have about four projects on the table. Ooh, like well, like for real, like legitimately, like. Well, I, you 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 better let WLRN <laughs> know in advance. I will. So I can review it. I will. D Smith. Yes. Thank you 
so much for your Thank time. You. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, likewise. Yeah. Likewise. And that's Sundown for Thursday, August 3rd. Leslie Ovaya Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Helen Acevedo helped produce the show. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Engineering our board operations today is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Paolo at gopaolo.com. You can also download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up on a program, a Miami author brings an apartment in Miami Beach to life. She tells the stories of the people that live there over the span of 70 years, from newlyweds and war vets to refugees and concert pianists. Anna Menendez joins us. I'm Wilkin Brutus, and remember, stay hydrated.